Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, everyone. I'm Perry Nemrov. This is Eliza Schlesinger. You are watching Collateral Ladies Night. All right, so... First thing we do on this show is we play dicey questions. I've got eight questions here and I roll the die on that dice tower three times. Those are the three questions we at least start with. Okay. Getting your first roll here. I got a one. Can you give us one audition high and one audition low? Okay. Uh, well, I haven't really booked that much. So I guess the audition high would be booking Spencer Confidential. So that was a good audition where I did it once and I nailed it. Oh God, an audition low. Actually, it was like last week. Um, oh God, and I can't believe I said this. I was auditioning and I chose to do a Southern accent because regionally I thought it makes sense. And the director goes, um, I'm even though they told me I could do it. So that was like, okay, I prepared it this way. And he's like, I'm just not sure why you're doing a Southern accent. This takes place. And it was South Florida. And I was like, and I go, have you ever been to South Florida? And he was like, yes, many times. And I don't hear that accent. Like, and I was just like, Eliza, why did you say like, how, like I'm challenging him because as if I like live there. And I was just like, oh, you could have definitely softened that. Didn't get it. Didn't want it, <laughs> but didn't get it. Wanted it, didn't get it. I feel like that project is worse off because it doesn't have you. I know nothing about the project, but I fully believe in what I just said. I feel that way too. Uh, no, it's going to be pretty big and uh I, I tanked it. Well, not that one, but the next one. I'm betting on it. Second okay. roll here. Put it in the thing. Good. We got number three. Filming 101. What is a seemingly silly question that you might have been afraid to ask on your very first film set? Uh, what are we doing? You get there and you're like, I, I'm so, like, sometimes they just put you in, especially if it's like a chaotic day. And you're like, I'm sorry, I don't, where do I look? Where's the camera? is a question that you're like not supposed to ask, but you're supposed to know. A seasoned actress always knows and she's been lit. Uh, very basic questions, like what's happening? Fair enough. Yeah. All right, we got yeah. one more. 
we have a five. Oh, this is silly, but I've gotten obsessed with this. It's zombie apocalypse. For whatever reason, I have a habit now of asking everybody how they would do in a zombie apocalypse. So that's my question to you right now. If there was a zombie apocalypse tomorrow, do you think you had any chance of surviving? Yeah, I think I have a hundred percent chance of surviving. I sleep with bear spray by my bed. I think you saw the kidnap scene in this movie. I know a lot of weird medical facts. I have an earthquake survival kit here because we live in California. Um, and I'm very good at coming down to like him or me and just like going shark black in the eyes and getting something done. So I will be queen of this land. Do you have an earthquake survival kit for your dog? No, not for my dog. I have it into my house for, cause I live in California. Does she, oh, does she have one? Let's see. No, she's just made of meat. She doesn't have, she would not survive. She is not a predator. I do not have my own earthquake survival kit, but I do have one for this guy right here. He's got his yeah. own. I do not. He'll live on and you will be eaten by him. That's, that's what I meant to do on this earth. Sacrifice myself for him at all costs. That's what he would prefer for sure. I lie. I'm cheating at my own game because I do want to include one special question we got from a little guest star here. Might be from Mark Ellis. And he wants he wants you to tell me the story of the license plate. I, I don't know if I should spell this out. Rohirsch? Yes, that's it. It was basically we were doing a gig and he'll remember it not like in the middle of nowhere. And we saw this guy in a truck and he pulled up in front of us. And I think he was like crushing, I think I'm like crushing a beer at a stoplight. And he was just like, like a dude's dude, uh, look like he might work, um, like with his hands. And we were just like, oh my God, this guy's just drinking and driving through this small town. And his license plate said Roe Hirsch. And we got to the gig and he was there and we had been chanting like Roe Hirsch, like a fraternity the whole time. And the, that guy was there. So he was like a little, he's become a symbol of our friendship and a, a personal hero and icon uh, in our conversations. Let's jump into the meat of the interview right now. We're starting from the very, very beginning. It's one thing to say, I want to grow up and I want to become a comic. I want to get into entertainment. It's another thing to really believe in your ability and the fact that you have a chance to do it. So do you remember the moment where it clicked in that respect where you went like, damn, I'm really good at this and I think I can get there? I think it's a narrative that we've heard before that somebody saw something and they were like, I can do this. For me, it was something I never questioned. It was always to be. I always was the class clown. I always wanted to do like a skit for a class project. I always was writing scripts, small stories, making my friends laugh. I asked for a camera when I was very young to film things. So I was already doing those things all by myself. Nobody else around me did it. And sort of Frankensteining together a comedic education and whatever I could watch late at night. And so I always just knew I was going to be funny for a living. Um, and nobody told me I couldn't. And nobody ever questioned it. And nobody ever really helped. But nobody ever stood in my way. I had very supportive parents who just wanted me to do whatever, as long as I was taking care of myself and doing well, they were happy. So I just moved in that direction. All right, jumping ahead to last comic standing now, because nothing fascinates me more than the production process on a reality TV competition show. So while you were doing that, what is one thing about that production process that made you say like, I cannot believe this is what you have to do to make a reality TV show? Well, it was actually sort of the inverse of that I you know this is in the heyday of reality tv this is around like rock of love and um 
like the girls next door and like that type. And I watched a lot of it. So going into that show, I knew what not to do. And what you don't do is give anything incriminating and you don't talk shit on the other people and you don't go into a confessional to vent. I didn't ever, I knew how these things were edited. I didn't want to give them a reason to make the cute blonde girl a bad guy. And I didn't want to ever put any of my stage time, uh, devote any of my stage time to talking about someone else. Because the second you mention someone else's name, they cut to B-roll of them. So all the garbage TV I watched actually served me quite well. Um, and I never, you know, it was my first big break. So I never questioned it. You're just, you're so exhausted and fighting for your seat there and, and everything. So you're just going along with it. Um, but it is an insane process to have gone through. That's yeah. really impressive. I, I've never heard anyone answer that question with a with an eye for editing, courtesy <laughs> of other reality TV watching. Yeah, editing is probably the most important thing in comedy, in art. Without your edit, you're garbage. Without a doubt. The other part of reality competition shows that fascinates me is what happens after you win? Because I love me some American Idol and similar shows, but there are so many times where I watch someone go on and win and everyone's familiar with them then, but then that's pretty much the last you see or hear from them. So what was the key for you to being a winner and then translating that win into a full-blown career? It's a choice. It's a choice. You are given this moment and this energy and you can sink or swim and you can rest on your laurels or you can use that as a jumping off point. A lot of people don't. Um, a lot of people, whatever kind of thing you win, you just kind of, you're like, this is it. I'm the best. Um, I use that as it now I was given this gift of becoming a headliner at 25 or 26, which a lot of people don't get. And so I just kept working. I just kept writing and kept going on the road and you know, you're auditioning, you're doing whatever, but I just kept moving forward. And I never wanted to be the person that did that one thing that you never heard from. And I love stand up so much and I've grown so much in my point of view, it just kept feeding itself and progressing. So it was a choice to not fade away. It was a choice I had to fight for. Shifting now to getting into film a little. Oh no, Dewey, you can't no, be it's in okay. here. <laughs> He usually sits nice and quiet on my lap. Now, wait, I'm petting him. I'm going to touch my face and have a big allergy attack in the middle of this. When, when did the interest in film and acting first creep in? Actually, you, you majored in film, right? I did, but who hasn't? So Fair. yeah, whatever. With, with that program, was it something that encouraged you to uh, specialize in a certain element of filmmaking? No, you know, you're open up to Emerson was really great about whatever your passion is, you can kind of cobble together a direction within yeah. your major. And so it was film studies, um, but it was less about the film to me and more about the process and getting to be funny and finding, it was the closest thing I could find without majoring in acting. It was the closest thing I could find that also uh, served all of my creative questions and outlets and that I could find to like performing. There was no comedy career at the time. So I just took that as a road. I just chose it um, because everybody likes movies. And uh, what was the rest of the question? Wait, you said no comedy career. Was comedy, was a comedy career not the, comedy not the dream? Degree. No, there was no, okay. there was no okay. comedy I degree. I, I think they offer one now, but it was just, you know, I was doing sketch comedy a lot in college and this was just all, as a way to fulfill a creative need and outlet that I hadn't really gotten my fill of growing up because I'm from Dallas, Texas. I went to like a college prep high school. So you do, I was just trying to 
get what I was hungry for. Then you get out of school. What are certain things that you learned in that program that came in handy when you wanted to pursue comedy? Well, definitely understanding lighting, which I'm not great at, but understanding editing and cameras. uh, And that was a bit autodidactic because I was still making my own things. And in my sketch troupe, I would edit sketches and some other, and a lot of people didn't, and I would write sketches. So it was uh, a real amalgamation of the film, but also of the film studies, but also, and technique being in a sketch troupe. And what I actually came away from that experience with was I'd written a one-man show, What Woman Hasn't, but I realized I didn't need to be a part of an ensemble to be funny. I could do this on my own. I had a desire to stand there alone. Um, and I didn't want to be limited by, oh, you've got to play this part or, oh, we don't think that's funny. I had that experience and it was great. And I was like, it's time to do this by myself. And so I moved to LA with no information on standup, none of the clubs, the circuit. I didn't know the kind of money you could make. I didn't know anything. I just knew that I belonged there, which is a weird thing. (laughs) So when did you start auditioning for films and television? The secret is people always think it's like something that I'm like recently interested in. I have been auditioning. I auditioned for community. I auditioned for The Hangover. That was a poor casting choice, but I've been auditioning at a really high level for a very long time. And it is, I have so much respect for actors because you need permission from several people to practice that craft and stand up. I can just get up. I don't even need a microphone sometimes. And there are people who put in those 10,000 hours and I put in my 10,000 hours with stand up, and I built a career with that. And I haven't put in the time that a lot of people had, but stand-up has afforded me acting opportunities. But uh, I've been at it a very long time. I've been tanking auditions for a very long time. Having, as you said, tank some auditions, what is the key to keeping your spirits up and not getting bummed out and saying, well, that's the end of that. I'm going to stick to stand-up and, and, you know, forging forward in that sector of the industry. Um, I guess, I mean, I was joking. The thing is, I don't tank them. You do well. And it's like, we just went with someone else. You never get the feedback. Yeah. So there's always that dangling carrot, but also it's le- It's not about being the greatest standup of all time because that is so subjective. And it's not about being the greatest actress. It's about, for me, and always has been, you can check all the interviews, evolving and getting to create art on my own terms on bigger and better stages. And I try to do that with every new project I I try to have a better iteration of myself. Having seen a whole bunch can confirm you are doing that. (laughs) Touching on your first feature here, is there anything you observed while making the movie Paradise that either made you think, when I make my own movie, when I'm the headliner, I'm going to do that too, or maybe the opposite. You know, I didn't like how that happened on that set, and I want to do something different. Yeah, I didn't like that there wasn't enough of me in that movie. So I said, one day I'm going to be in every scene of a movie. Success. Uh, Yeah, but I remember getting that gig and that was cool. But, you know, you're only there for your shots. But everybody on set was cool. And I spent my time in a casino and then that was that. And it was very brief. All right. Here's a bit of a a segue question for you because I really want to talk about this next movie. This is an industry that loves to box people in when they're really good at one thing. What? Isn't that crazy? Who would have thunk? But if that happened to you, how did you wind up breaking out of it? Writing your own story, writing your own material. Being a stand-up, I'm so lucky to be successful at that because I'm so in charge of what comes out of my mouth, how I deliver it, the artwork that we do for my tour, how I present myself. Um, But creating your own, everything that I've ever done was because I 
got it over the hill. Nothing has ever been given to me. I don't have, you know, people that are like, we got to put you on a show. We just want to give you this. It's always been me pitching it, me writing it, me getting people on my side. And that is a big part of it. But I think the payoff for that is that you are mostly in control creatively and that's a gift. And then hopefully that opens up doors to get to work with people who are more creative or better than you. Um, Cause I always want to grow as an artist. So you get out of that box by writing your way out of it and not asking for permission. Oh, for everyone out there who wants to see you doing something outside of the comedy genre, I cannot recommend pieces of a woman enough Ooh. and far outside of comedy. <laughs> oh my, that is a mighty heavy film and you are great in it. And obviously, so are heavyweights like Vanessa Kirby and Ellen Burstyn. So yeah. what's it like stepping onto a set with folks like them? Is there immediate confidence given you've had some experience or is there any thinking, you know, this is a big switch. Can I do it? I was positive that it was a mistake that I was there the first couple of days. I called my agent when I was just like, I think, I think this is, a mistake. I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to be here in a weird way. It was a relief because when you know you aren't the best one and you're not expected to be the best one, the lifting isn't as heavy. I knew all I had to do was show up, keep my mouth shut and watch and do exactly what Cornell asked me to do. And when you've been pushing a boulder uphill your whole career to be like funny and personable and there and write everything, all I have to do is show up and listen. I, it was such a gift to be on set with people who are true actors. Um, and so what we shot isn't all that was there. You know, my part started off a certain way and then the editing, it turned out different. But, you know, other than the fact that it was absolutely freezing, it was a, an honor to be there. I don't want to take away from the value of good reaction shots, but you're not giving yourself enough credit. The line of yours that sticks in my head is when you shout out the window to Vanessa, like, I love you because as someone with a sister, whenever we fight that, that that's a moment. And that's like a tone in your voice that rings true so much. Thank you. Yeah. You have to make those tiny moments that you're given count again. It was freezing. So that vulnerability probably came from the fact that I couldn't feel my legs. Like, I love you. Um, but it was, it was really cool to be around people that I didn't feel I needed to outdo or steal a scene from. I just wanted to be there and not be the reason the scene was fucked up. That's all I wanted was to go home at the end of every day. Like, I think I did a good job. Yeah, did a good job. Are you able to share anything about any of those scenes that might've got cut or what we don't see of her story in the final film? Um, I mean, the story changed. It was always about that and the way there were so many things were, there's so many moving pieces. I know that there was a scene between she and I uh, in our childhood bedroom that got cut where it's very artistic and it's very weirdly French, even though it's not a French film where I'm holding a music box and crying. And I got real tears for that and they cut it. And I was like, I was just thinking about horrible death the whole time, but okay, it's a good exercise. <laughs> I guess that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, One yeah. scene I'm obsessed with in that movie is obviously the long take that happens when the whole family gets together. And it makes yeah. me wonder, what are you doing when you're not on camera in a super long shot like that? Are you staying in character and going through her emotions? Are you kind of like hiding in the corner of a room to not be in frame? What's going on there? I am setting the table. I am setting, I don't know if you can hear the silverware the entire time I'm setting the table and you are listening and waiting for your Meg White for your beats to like yell something out or the white stripes or whatever the line was. And then you're waiting for his line however he's going, so you can cross and go and then have that moment. Like it is a choreographed dance that we worked on for a very long time because it's a wonder. Um, so that whole time you're on edge, like 
please don't don't fuck up and be the reason that we have to scrap like 11 minutes of a shot that we can't edit can you call anyone out did anyone actually do that 11 minutes in uh i don't think so i don't i don't remember i think i again i was just like white knuckling it the whole time like don't let it be you so that, that movie was uh an experience <laughs> Uh, the movie is something else. I think it deserved even more credit than it got on the award circuit. But anyway, getting into good on paper now with the writing process, what would you say is the biggest difference between gauging the likelihood of a joke landing on stage versus in a screenplay? Do any of your techniques for connecting with a live audience carry over when you're writing a script? You know, at this point in stand-up, um, I have a very good grasp of timing cadence, delivery. This is stuff that this speaks to the craft versus just structural joke telling, right? We all know the way a knock-knock joke should sound. We all know the way a good story should sound, but there is like a math behind it. So you apply that. And also I am the one delivering these jokes. So I know how I would deliver a joke. So it's something that I wonder sometimes if writers do, I will say the joke out loud. And Andrea, at the beginning, I kind of poke fun at the audition process because she reads this thing that's written so weirdly in her audition. And she's like, you shouldn't say it this many times. It should be a rule of three. And they're just like, you're a dumb girl who cares. So I, I was very committed to making sure it all flowed comedically, but then very open to at the table read on the day, being okay with cutting it or adding a, an adjective or a word because maybe it isn't as funny as I thought it was when I was alone. Or maybe that person has something else that makes it, we're delivering it a different way and we need to adjust it. So being confident in your writing, but being okay with uh, pivoting. With that in mind, at that table read, or maybe when you're on set, what is the scene that required the most workshopping? I think the most, I'm trying to remember this, it's so long ago now, but I think the most choreography was the scene in the bar basement where he's like tied up. Um, because some of the shots involve like I'm turning and I'm grabbing and I'm spinning and it's a lot to do the lines and move elegantly, but also accomplish something. Um, and also carrying him in there was difficult because you don't want it to look like he's helping you, but he also weighed so much. So making that effortless was hard. I was genuinely wondering about that when I'm watching. I was very into the movie, but I'm always thinking about those behind the scenes details and that genuinely looked like you were lifting him. Good, thank you. It was very, very hard. Another workshopping type question, because one of my favorite qualities of the movie is that there's tons of outrageous laugh out loud comedy in it, but it's also got a real streak of sincerity to it too. And I don't think we see that balance that well that often. So with that in mind, are there any particular scenes in the film that required a similar amount of workshopping just to make sure that you had that and you were maintaining both things strongly throughout? I don't know if it was workshopping as much as just mindfulness on the page. You know, you think about when Andrea and Margot have that fight, wanting to keep it brief because we all know they're going to make up and we all know she's going to listen to Margot. So we didn't want to draw it out with like a montage, um, keeping it grounded and keeping these things honest um, and bringing that vulnerability, you know, always think, first of all, this did happen. So I could always reference the source material but wanting to make sure that we were being authentic in the way that women do speak to each other. That is how my best friend and I speak to each other. It's not candy coated. We're not like slap tickling. We're not like, what up girlfriend? Like it's very blunt. And I don't know if that's because my best friend is queer, 
uh, or because I wanted Margot to, uh, Margaret to be that. There's a bluntness to it, you know, like we're sisters. We're not just like dumb girls. Um, and we were, I was very mindful in, this is an incredibly, this is a really sad story that happened to a very normal, strong woman. And so I was mindful the whole time. How do we make sure that the audience likes her? And unfortunately, as a woman, you do have to think about that, even though I'm like, I was just living my life. She's just living her life, paying her way through life, working hard. And he sought to disrupt that. So making vulnerable choices gives her texture because I think it's so easy to vilify a woman who God forbid stands on her own two feet and has, has her own thoughts in her head. And I didn't want that to happen to her. Given how you described the true experience, what was it like revisiting it through film? Would you describe it as more challenging or more cathartic? The writing of it was extremely cathartic. So this happened around 2015 and I started quietly writing this as a process, as a cathartic process for about two years. And that was before I'd met the producer who would eventually produce this. But the further away, and I'm a healthy person and I made a choice after it happened. I was like, I'm not gonna pay this forward to anyone. And I do choose to trust people. This is a freak thing. Even though this happens to a lot of people, this is a freak thing. Um, so I was very honest with people that I dated, like, hey, I, my cage kind of got rattled. I'm a little weird and I'm fine. I've been married for three years. He's cool. He's the best. Um, but the writing was cathartic. And of course, when you're writing it, I'm like, this is a revenge rom-com. This is for the ending is so people feel vindicated if they've ever been screwed over unjustly. But I don't feel any of those things now. I've worked through it so much that now, and I can say this honestly from the highest light, I don't even care if Dennis Kelly ever sees it. This isn't about his reaction. This isn't about the man's reaction to what happened to the woman. This is about her story. And when I think of that story now, I picture Ryan Hansen and Margaret Cho and Kimmy Gatewood. Like I think of the movie, not the original pain. Speaking of the original experience, I have a feeling a lot of people are going to watch this movie and there's going to be certain parts where they're going to think to themselves, this, this could never happen. That's ridiculous. Sure. What is something that might make someone say that, but you could say like, no, this, this was legit. This is how it went down. You know, I definitely have watched things where, you know, like some girls like, I'm in a cult, it could happen to you. And, I'm, and I tried to be, I was just like, no way, what is wrong with you? But then I was like, but this happened to me. Here's what I will say, because it's very easy and it's okay because I put it out there for judgment. Like this art is no longer mine. It belongs to you guys. And I hope it sparks a conversation. I hope some people find her likable. Some don't, some believe it, some don't. Uh, Cause that means we did our job. It's because he lied about things that nobody really lies about that it was, he passed for so long. He didn't come out with lies about how much money he had and and horses and castles. And it wasn't, we weren't in a relationship. So, you know, all the songs, hip hop and country and everything's about someone who cheats on you. Movies are about cheaters. These are the things that we're inculcated to sort of look out for. In the first five minutes you meet someone, they tell you where they're from, maybe where they went to school, what they do, maybe where they live. We're not conditioned to question these things because nobody lies about them. So that's what I slip in. You know, I say to you, I had Cheerios this morning. Why would you question it? If I told you I'm talking to you from LA, why would I lie about that? If I told you my Netflix special did really well, of course I might lie about it, but you'd probably believe me, you know? So it was about amassing tons of tiny lies that built a character versus big lies that might make a red flag. So there were no red flags. One more question on good on paper before we move on. Yeah. Why didn't you end up calling the movie Cuttlefish? I tried, Harry. 
I tried. I actually, that scene I wrote way later, like days before we shot it. And I said, it'll be a new type of catfish. You'll see. And marketing didn't like it. And so cuttlefish was what I wanted. Admittedly, the only reason I'm aware of cuttlefish, this is going to sound ridiculous, is because it's part of what makes an Indominus Rex in Jurassic World. And I'm obsessed with Jurassic Park. That is so funny. I would have gotten it. (laughs) You would have gotten it. uh, Very sneaky fish. Prior to that, the working title for a long time, it was just called Dennis Kelly didn't go to Yale. And then it was called Play It As It Lies. And we were like, we'll figure it out later. And I said, cuttlefish. And we wrote this scene. And then it was too late. To, we already locked it. So we couldn't take the cuttlefish scene out. But I still thought it was good. But they, they didn't go for it. But I have it on record now that you thought, and you're smart, and you thought that too. You're giving me too much credit. But <laughs> I like all those options there. Admittedly, good on paper might more broadly convey the idea of the movie. So I respect Netflix for the decision. Okay. Yeah, thank you. All right. Before we go into our next game, You've done a little of everything. You got comedy specials, live shows, podcasts, movies, a book. Is there any new medium on your radar that you want to explore next? I think it's about, you know, a, a stand-up career is built by going into markets and going into markets over and over and building an audience. And I want to do that with all those other mediums. My second book, uh, All Things Aside, will be coming out in about a year. I want to write that book even better than I did Girl Logic. And um, I want, you know, I want my podcast, of course, to be bigger because I want to give more thoughtful interviews. So it's always about <clears throat> tackling another screenplay, a more dramatic screenplay, getting a second season of a show on air is a big goal of mine. <laughs> um, but it's really about the at-bats and pe- being surrounded by enough people that say yes, that you get a chance to show the world what you want to do. And somehow I got one through with this movie. So I'm so grateful. Can I make a weird suggestion that might be ridiculous? I want to see stand-up comedy done in VR. I saw yeah, a Broadway yeah. performance once in VR, and it was the closest thing to make me feel like I was really in the theater. And I love that feeling, and I want that feeling with stand-up. It's a conversation that we had with Oculus um, a while ago. And stand-up's one of those things that like people are reticent to dip their toe in, and then all of a sudden everyone does it. So uh, it's definitely a conversation we've had. I like hearing that. All right, we have hit game number two. Okay. We're going to build you another reality show competition to participate in through a whole bunch of questions. The first one is, you get the chance to compete in the reality TV show of your choice. What show do you pick and why? Okay, this is a very honest answer and I hope they're watching. It would be being a guest judge on RuPaul's Drag Race. I've watched every season. I ask them every season. I'm a genuine fan. I'm very invested. Put me on the show. I feel like that's a very reasonable request. Reasonable request, Rue. If you had to play in one, actually compete. All right. What would you be good at? Okay, maybe uh, like American Ninja Warrior gonna like rip your, no, I'm not tall enough. I'm like, what am I good at? What am I good at? Okay, no, I don't wanna. Cooking. Okay, oh, cooking. Uh, but okay, yeah, yeah. If there was a show about wives of chefs who actually don't love cooking, I bet I'd win because I think I've absorbed enough information from my brilliant husband that I could do it. All right, so you you get on this show, you're going to compete in it. You have the opportunity to bring a teammate, but that teammate has to be a co-star you worked with before. Who are you bringing? My husband. My husband. We do a cooking show called Don't Panic Pantry. Ever since quarantine, we've done over 200 episodes. That is my golden ticket. What is your secret weapon for winning this contest? My husband. 
taking my husband's ideas and then making them like really funny and like relatable and vulnerable. Okay, that's fair. I'll go with that. How about this? What is your team weakness? What is the one thing that'll trip you up and maybe mess up the competition for you? Me, I I have no patience. I get really bored and I don't want to prep anything. And I am the kind of person that will rip the top off an avocado and just squeeze it. I don't want to use a utensil. I'm so lazy. I'm going to regret saying this out loud again, but there's no judgment coming from me. I'm still someone who makes eggs in the microwave. Oh, that's disgusting. You're going to get sick. It's not though. You can make scrambled eggs in the microwave. Haven't you ever seen those as seen on TV, little egg cooker things? It is okay. I thought you put it on a plate. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do in a microwave. Um, You crack the egg, you put it in a bowl and you, you know, you whisk it or whatever. And then you put it in for 30 seconds. You take it in, you whisk it again and you wind up with uh, scrambled eggs. Okay. You know what? You're right. And even a raw egg is okay. And I shouldn't judge you. And I'm sorry as a woman that I did that because I eat deli turkey out of a bag over the trash can. So whatever. I eat peanut butter out of the jar. So I think we're even again. No, here we go. What is the show turning into? Like (laughs) being a normal woman. (laughs) I have two last questions that we always end on. First one is, can you name someone who is changing the entertainment industry for the better? I can name a lot of people who are changing the entertainment industry for the better. Um, is it, can I just do like a group of people? Please do. I think young people with visions and people of color and the Asian representation, you know, this isn't about, we only want to see one type of minority or one type of person. I think the more that we make other people's stories accessible, queer, black, brown, Jewish, Asian, whatever, the less of a commodity is and the uh, commodity is a more uh, normalized it becomes and the less of an issue. And I don't know if we'll see that in our lifetime, but I think getting to peek into other people's narratives and lives and seeing yourself or someone who's nothing like you, but reminds you of yourself, I think is very powerful. Um, and women are doing that and getting to see women just being normal versus just the girlfriend or be unlikable, which is so fun, you know? So what's happening now, I think is a good correction. Very much behind that. Our final question is a deep one. You could take it in a lighter direction if you prefer. What is the biggest fear you've ever had that you've actually managed to overcome? I don't think I've overcome it. I think my greatest fear, I know I should give like a funny answer, is not being seen. And I think that that's what, I think visibility drives a lot of people and a lot of reasons for that but not being seen and heard, whether it's in a relationship or your integrity in your art or something you're creating, you know, oftentimes I feel like I'm doing things in a vacuum. And then someone reminds you like, we saw that it mattered. So I think that is a fear that also drives me. So I think if I ever lost that fear, I think I'd lose a part of my drive. So I can reckon with it, but I don't think I'll ever beat it. I hear you on that. And thank you for sharing that because maybe someone else out there watching this show feels the same way and hearing someone they admire say that will make them feel differently about it. Definitely. I got to let you go. Huge thank you for spending some time with us on Collider Ladies Night for everybody out there. Good on paper. It's on Netflix right now. Trust me. You want to watch this movie. Trust me. Watch it. Thank you so much for your time, Eliza. And thank you. Thank you so much for such a thoughtful interview, Perry. This was great. 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.